Now, the Beatitudes are the opening lines to the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody, as they said in his day, no man speaks like this man. Jesus, the greatest teacher, greatest preacher, greatest philosopher, greatest counselor, you name it, he was the greatest, none like him, because he was all God, all man, all man, all God. He was the God-man. Now, the historical setting for the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes, is very important because it helps us understand what Jesus' listeners have been living under. And so let me just talk to you about the historical setting, just for a moment, to kind of set it up. The land of Judea was occupied in Jesus' day by a tyrannical military government. That's what they lived under. It was a world of absolute rulers, the antithesis of democracy. It was a world of persecution. Uh, The people were mere slaves for the Romans. If you lived in in Rome and and Judea, in the land where Jesus taught and walked and, and did what he did, then you were under Roman dictatorship and tyranny. A third, of their tax, a third of their income was taken away by taxes. You know what hit me when I read that? We've almost got that beat. Slavery was rampant when Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount. There were approximately three slaves for every free man. So slavery was everywhere. So when Jesus stood on the hill and began to teach oppression, despair, bondage, and servitude were the order of the day. And that was the daily experience of the people who were listening to him. And the Bible says, heard him gladly. The poor heard him gladly. When Jesus spoke about the poor in spirit, those who mourned, the persecuted, he was talking right to them, right where they lived. He wasn't theorizing. He wasn't philosophizing. He was not saying pre, uh, you know, pretty sweet nothings. He was talking right to their pain. Amen. Jesus did. Now, before delving into the Beatitudes, uh, I want to back up to chapter 4. And, and just go to the, just one chapter preceding uh, Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount to give us an idea of what he had done leading right up to it. We see Jesus' encounter, first of all, in chapter 4 with the devil in the wilderness. I call it the showdown in the desert when Satan attacked him. And Jesus beat him every time with the word of God. And do you know that everything that Jesus pulled from out of the Bible was out of one chapter in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8? He must have really liked Deuteronomy 8. Because every retort he gave to the devil's temptation came out of Deuteronomy 8. That's free. That has nothing to do with Sermon on the Mount. I'm just telling you that. Okay? Then he went from there to his very first sermon. I mean, he, he, he defeats the devil, comes out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, and he goes to his hometown in Nazareth, goes into the synagogue, steps into the podium or whatever it was they stood behind. He opened up Isaiah, and he quoted out of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me, so on and so forth. And in his first sermon, they were infuriated with him, took him to the side of a hill and tried to throw him off and kill him. Now that is something that will stop your ministry before it ever started. That's what you call a fiery initiation into ministry. 
His first sermon, they tried to kill him. Wow. Well, from there he traveled to Capernaum, where he called four men to be his disciples. They were Peter, his brother Andrew, James, and his brother John. And do you know that when you go to the book of Acts, I was reading today, you go to the book of Acts, and it starts listing the people who are gathered in the upper room, waiting for the falling of the Spirit. The first four that are named are Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And those were the first four called, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Two sets of brothers. Now he went from there to Galilee, where miracles flowed like butter from his sacred hands. Don't you know what it was like to be touched by Jesus? Can you imagine looking into the eyes of God and having those hands touch you? Oh, mercy. I know nobody backslid who he touched right? So Matthew records this. Let's just read what Jesus did leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew records, quote, and Jesus went around all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. You know what? We so believe that, that we've got a healing room going on right now. And people are going to be healed back there in the name of Jesus. So we're just following the master. Look at the master did. Healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. And then it says in verse 24, his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. Do you? I think sometimes we read this and it just kind of skips right past us. But, but listen to this. Diagnosable diseases and people who were in demonic torment. And those who were possessed of the devil. Epileptics who would fall into seizures. And the Bible says the seizures would throw them into the fire and into the water. The devil trying to destroy them. Paralytics. I mean, folks, if you were with Jesus in these days, all you saw coming towards you was essentially a hospital had been emptied out. Intensive care had been emptied out. Hospice had been emptied out. And our Lord healed them, delivered them. He went about everywhere doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Boy, I just, that gets the preach on me. We need to understand who Jesus is. Amen? He was not just some tiny Tim, religious tiny Tim, tiptoeing through the religious tulips. He was God, and when he walked on the scene, the devils trembled. All right. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Now, keep this in mind. It is this same crowd, because chapter 4 leads right into chapter 5. It's the same crowd of healed, delivered, saved, and those otherwise touched by the power of God through Jesus that he is looking at at the beginning of chapter 5. It's the crowd that just experienced his miraculous ministry. And so when it says, and sitting on a mountain, seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain and sat. Seeing what multitudes? These multitudes that just got healed, delivered, saved, fixed, ministered to, experienced his power, Those are the multitudes he saw. 
and that were fresh on his mind when he began the Sermon on the Mount. So when he talks about the poor in the spirit, poor in spirit, the mourners, the hungry, the thirsty, he's thinking of the ones he just touched. And the news that he delivers to these people is incredible. It's fantastic. There was an answer to their dilemma. And that is our message here at Turning Point to the entire world. We're going to take the gospel to the entire world. I know I say that a lot, but we're going to. We're going to take the gospel, the word, to the entire world. We're already taking it to the whole country. We're going to take it to the whole world. Here is our message. It's good news, not bad news. That there is an answer for your dilemma, you that are poor in spirit. There is an answer, those of you that are mourning. There is an answer for the darkness, the bondage, the despair, the hopelessness. There is an answer, and it's a man, the man, Christ Jesus. Okay? He's telling them, God sees your plight. And the answer is standing right in front of you. It's me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to heal the sick and so on and so forth. That was his first message, his first sermon. Nine different times he tells them they are blessed. And that word blessed means happy and to be congratulated. Now, if I'm looking at people who are poor in spirit and mourning, which I'm going to show you the, the, the gravity of those two words in a minute. But if I'm looking at people like that, how can I tell them that they are happy and should be congratulated? Because their answer was standing in front of them, and they were about to experience the power of God. In other words, the devil's time was up, and God was about to move all over their life. So they're happy to be congratulated. Now, let me make something clear, because I've heard this taught in so many different ways. Blessed are those are the poor in spirit. There's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. When Jesus describes the poor in spirit and those who are mourning, please understand with me tonight, this does not mean that there was some kind of an inherent blessing in the condition of being poor in spirit. In other words, there's nothing spiritual or cool or great or to be envied or to be congratulated because you're poor in spirit. That is not what he means. He's not saying, he's not putting a spiritual premium on being a person who walks around mourning all the time with a long face. In other words, Jesus isn't telling us there's something particularly spiritually good about those conditions. He's not bragging on those conditions. You understand? He was instead telling them that an answer to their plight had arrived, Jesus Christ himself and the kingdom of God he was making available to them through faith in him, and that's why they needed to be happy, and that's why they deserved to be congratulated, because something powerful was about to take place in their life as they encountered God's very Messiah. You know, some people walk around and they think it's spiritual to be poor or they think it's spiritual to be mourning. But that's not what he's saying. And I've heard it taught that way. Or that mourning means humble. I'm, I'm going to get to all that in a minute. But what he's telling them in a nutshell is, I don't want you to remain poor in spirit. I don't want you to remain mourning. I came to make you right. 
So let's read the Beatitudes and then deal with the first four types of people Jesus said are happy and to be congratulated. And I want you to read them with me. We're going to put them right up there. We're going to read the first nine verses of chapter five. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever lived. Are you ready? And seeing the multitudes, I hear two of you. Let's start over. One, two, three. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He could have stopped right there, and that would be one of the greatest messages ever preached. But he was just getting warmed up. All right. Let's deal with the first four. What does he mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. They don't look very blessed to me. When I've heard this taught in the past, I heard it taught this way, that the poor, the word poor in spirit means the humble. Blessed are the humble, for there's the kingdom of heaven. But folks, that's not what it means at all. Jesus is looking at a ruined soul, the poor in spirit. That little phrase, poor in spirit, is actually a graphic description of the state of a soul that is lost. The word poor means, get this, it's very strong, to crouch or cower like a beggar. It is to be destitute completely lacking resources, a spiritual peasant, the poor in spirit. Now, when I read that, and I understand what the word means, then I believe I'm catching on to what Jesus was talking about when he began the Sermon on the Mount. The first thing he addresses is people who are lost, the poor in spirit. If you can be poor in spirit, you can be rich in spirit. If you can be poor, I'm talking about spiritually, not materially, but if you can be poor, you can be rich. We've all stopped at a red light and seen the person here over on the corner with a sign. I don't have any money. I don't have a job. They look ragged. Their hair is terrible. They haven't shaved. It it looks really, really rough, and and you want to turn away, and and you don't want to catch their eye because you feel embarrassed for them, and you hurt for them, and you don't know quite what to do when you see them. Because everything about them says poor. Now watch this. That's the way the soul looks that is lost. And we cannot get away from this, folks. We have a soul. And that soul can be poverty-stricken. And when is it poverty-stricken? It is poverty-stricken before you ever know Jesus. It's dead. Does Jesus not describe here the lost person whose soul is dead in trespasses and sins? In the Beatitudes, Jesus is starting at the beginning of why he came to earth. He's starting right at the beginning. Why did I come? I came to seek and to save that which was lost. So he's starting right there with the Beatitudes. He's addressing this crowd. 
They've been healed. They've been delivered. They've experienced his miracle power. But he says, let me get right down to your biggest problem. Your biggest problem was not the disease that racked your body. Your biggest problem was your poverty of spirit. You're lost. And we need to be saved. And do you know that all other blessings begin with this one? If you don't experience your soul being saved, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is completely and totally moot. You might as well not even read it. It doesn't matter. It's not your mail. The Sermon on the Mount is given for kingdom living. It's giving, it is sharing with us, telling us the laws of the kingdom of God. And if we're not saved, none of it pertains to us. So it is no shock to me that Jesus started out dealing with the lost, telling them, until you get saved, you're going to remain in poverty of spirit. And when you're in poverty of spirit, you remain lost, and none of the rest of this is going to matter to you at all. You might as well walk away, go home, forget about it, if you don't get saved. And, and I think implied in the verse is this. He's talking to the poor in spirit who know that they're poor in spirit. Do you know, I, I preach all the time. I preach all the time. I was telling Kathy today, sometimes I feel like a sermon machine. Put in a quarter and pull my arm and I just spit out a sermon. I, I preach all the time. I study all the time. I'm in the word all the time. And, and I love it. Don't get me wrong. I, I love it. Sometimes you get a brain freeze. Sometimes you need a break, but I love what I do. But here's the deal. I preach all the time and I can tell that there are some people who are hearing me who don't realize that they are in poverty of spirit. And until you know that this is you, you are never going to be saved. That's why it's so sad that churches in America have come, big churches, major churches, have gone on television and been interviewed, and the pastors have said, oh, we, we don't talk about sin, and we don't talk about hell. We, we just want the people to leave feeling good, and I want to throw up, because you know why? If you don't talk about sin, they're never going to know they're poor in spirit, and if they don't know they're poor in spirit, how are they ever going to get saved? I mean, seriously, church, that's the message. You have a disease and we've got the shot. And his name is Jesus and the blood of the lamb. And the blood of the lamb cleanses you of all your sin. And if you get away from that, you're not a church. You're a motivational club. Man, when I was sitting in juvenile home, that preacher came, pointed his long bony finger right in my face and told me I was going to hell which really was not news to me. But I tell you, that's what the conviction of sin is all about. If you're not convicted of sin, you're never going to get saved. So Jesus, we, we could put it this way. Blessed is the poor in, or are the poor in spirit who know they're poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. In the book of Revelation, Jesus, the church, uh, Jesus speaks to the church in Laodicea about those who were poor in spirit, but they didn't see it. Look at what he said. You say, he's talking right to them, you say, I am rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. And then Jesus says to them, but you don't realize, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, 
and naked. And we could take those five adjectives and put them into one verse. Poor in spirit. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. These people in the church of Laodicea were lost and didn't even know it. Sitting in church. He says, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. So to me, when Jesus opens up the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes with the very first thing, blessed are the poor in spirit who know it, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven, then I fully understand what he's doing. He's starting at base one. You must be saved for any of the rest of this message to be relevant to you at all. You've got to come through the gate. You've got to be saved. Come through the door. I'm standing at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. He will be saved. But until then, you are poverty stricken. You are miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and spiritually naked. We all have to begin at the first beatitude. How many of you are so thankful that the first beatitude took place in your life? Amen? It took place in your life. And we admitted, oh, my Lord, I am so spiritually poverty-stricken. Save me! When we do so, Jesus promised, ours will be the kingdom of heaven. Now, the next one follows the first one. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Now, the word mourn is also very, very graphic. It means the equivalent of or the mourning level of somebody who has lost a loved one. That level of mourning. Paralyzing mourning. Deep mourning. It is grief so severe it takes possession of a person and cannot be hid. This person is heartbroken, shattered, undone. It's not talking about somebody just kind of moping. No, this person is totally shattered. Blessed are the shattered Blessed are the emotionally ruined. Blessed are the devastated emotionally. Now, like you, I read that and I go, how can they be blessed? Again, because the answer is standing there. I'm the only one who can really comfort you. Now, keeping it in context, church, I believe he's again talking about the person who has realized their poverty in spirit. And you know what? They are saying, I feel convicted of my sin. I am so heartbroken that I am in sin and I have broken the heart of God. That's the context. He's addressing those who have come under deep conviction and sorrow for their sin. It follows the first beatitude. Oh, wow, I realize I'm poverty stricken. I'm I'm lost. And now, blessed are the morning, I'm mourning over the condition that I'm in. Listen, I've never seen anybody get saved. That, that was feeling great about themselves when they came to the cross. I've always seen people weeping, crying, shaking, trembling, humbled, mortified, aghast at their condition before God. Mourning. And Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn because they're going to be comforted when the blood covers their sin and they receive the peace of God. The person in mind, no doubt about it to me, has seen the extreme poverty of their spiritual condition, that they have sinned against God, that they are utterly lost, 
And the knowledge of this has broken their heart. They are mourning. Now let me give you an example. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church a letter, and it was 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. He wrote to them and he rebuked them good for several things that were in their midst that were sinful. And it brought them under great conviction. I want you to look at how he describes it. Listen to how they mourned under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, quote, I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while. Now I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain it caused you, or the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. I did not harm you bringing you under conviction of sin. For the kind of sorrow, he goes on to say in verse 10, the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There is no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow which lacks repentance results in spiritual death. Do you hear what he's saying? He said, I sent you a letter. Here you were, you were putting your seal of approval on sin in your midst. You weren't dealing with immorality that was in your midst. There were things that were moving through the church there at Corinth that were against the word of God, and they just thought it was great. They were politically correct Corinthians. And Paul sent this letter and rebuked them, and they came under mourning. They came under sorrow. But it was not the kind of sorrow that leads to death. Because the kind of sorrow that leads to death is that sorrow for which there is no cure. But when you come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit for sin, it brings mourning. And those who mourn over conviction of sin go to God with it and say, Lord, please forgive me for the sin that that has been in my life and the sin that I put my seal of approval on. God, forgive me for siding with the devil and not with you. Forgive me, Lord. And what happens? That person is comforted when God says, you are forgiven through my blood. Okay, so, so do you see the progression with me in the Beatitudes? First, the person poor in spirit. Uh-oh, I am poverty-stricken. I am lost. But then those that mourn, they begin to mourn over their sin. They are, they are heartbroken over their sin. And what do they do? They go to Jesus. It's not the kind of sin that leads to death or sorrow that leads to death, but it's the sorrow that leads to repentance, which brings life. And they go to the Lord and they say, please forgive me, Lord. I'm heartbroken over my sin. And he says, forgiven, and he comforts them, and peace sweeps over their soul. And you know what happened? In this verse, they get saved. There is no question in my mind that this is the morning that Jesus was talking about. We'll never be comforted, as he promised, until we're first sorry, with godly sorrow over our sin. For that kind of sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to salvation, which leads to experiencing the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that our sins are forgiven. I just see Jesus tracking the salvation of a soul in the Sermon on the Mount. Not that he doesn't comfort us when we're mourning about other things, but I think in context, this is exactly what it's talking about. 
They saw their poverty of spirit, mourned over their sins, and are now in the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. How many of you are thankful that God convicted you of sin? Right? Because without it, we'd be out there lost as a goose in a hailstorm. East Texas just came right out of me. I was there for seven years. Every once in a while, I backslide and go back into it. No. So, so keep that in mind. Now, look at the next one, the word meek. The word meek is a fruit of the Spirit. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. We tend to think, well, if somebody calls you meek, he just called you weak. That's not it. Meekness is actually a strength. You know what it means? It means literally strength held back. Strength held back. My son teaches martial arts. Um, He is a tough guy. I've gone to his contests, and I've seen him bring down men much bigger than him. But he knows a lot of people that are in martial arts. And a story was told me. A guy who had a black belt driving down the highway, and another guy in a pickup truck, He pulled in front of him, not the guy in the pickup truck, the martial arts guy, just changed lanes and got in front of this guy with a pickup. The guy with the pickup, and you know pickup drivers, they don't like you to pull in front of them. (laughs) You understand that. We've noticed that. Pickup truck drivers are a type. I don't want to stereotype, but just let me stereotype. No, not all of them, but anyway, he pulled in front of this guy. He pulled in front. And, and. This guy in the pickup, he had a cop, cowboy hat, the whole bit, manly man. He starts leaning on his horn, got mad, and pulled up next to the guy. And the guy that knew the martial arts looked like a nerd. Just, you know, just didn't look bad at all. So the guy pulls up to him, get over, get over. Well, the guy that knew the martial arts, black belt, pulled over. The guy in the pickup pull over the side of the road. He jumps out of his pickup truck and starts heading right for this black belt. And the guy that was the black belt just did one of his poses. And this cowboy froze in his tracks. Now, you know what the the black belt did? He was meek. What he was telling him is, I could, but I won't. He said this guy backed up like this, tipped his hat, got in the pickup and drove away. Oh, I love that. Could I try that, man? No. Now, that may be a kind of a gnarly illustration, but it's this. Meek means I could, but I won't. You know how God is so meek? Do you know that God could wipe out the planet tonight, but he won't? How many times have you said, if I were God, that person would be vapor? And it's a good thing you're not God, right? So get in mind that meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength held back. It's a fruit of the Spirit. 
Love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith. Meekness points to the person who is, one commentator said, quote, of a mild, gentle, long-suffering, and forgiving disposition, who are slow to anger, averse from wrath, not easily provoked, and if at any time at all provoked, soon pacified, who never resent an injury, nor return evil for evil, but make it their care to overcome evil with good, who by the sweetness, affability, courteousness, and kindness of their disposition, endeavor to reconcile such as may be offended and to win over them to peace and love. The commentator is Benson. Do you get the picture here? So what is he describing, folks? He's describing a person who is developing the fruit of the Spirit. Now, so they started out, oh my gosh, I'm poverty stricken, I'm, I'm lost, and I'm going to hell. Then I'm mourning over this. Oh God, forgive me, I've sinned against you, I've broken your heart, so it's broken my heart. Now, they're saved. And they're bearing fruit. So he's talking now, as this person continues their spiritual journey, hey, blessed are you, meek, for you shall inherit the earth. The meek person leaves their lot in life to God. Their life is one of faith in his goodness, his justice, and they bank on his promises. Jesus said they will inherit the earth. What in the world did he mean by that? Well, I take that to mean in the world to come, when Jesus rules the earth, they will share in what is his. Didn't Jesus say as much? Matthew twenty-five, twenty-one. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Jesus said that when he was talking about his return. So when Jesus returns, those who have trusted their lot to him and walked in meekness, the fruit of the Spirit, and didn't walk in vengeance and love people and tried to minister to people and reach people and gave their lives to help other people in the name of Jesus, those meek people who let him be their vindicator and not them, who let him stand up on their behalf and not themselves, who didn't live a life of vengeance but a life of forgiveness, those meek people are going to be told by Jesus, hey, come on, enter into the joy of your Lord, and I'm about to put you over much in the world to come. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Oh, I'll tell you, church, there's a, there's a whole new world coming. Do you know that? There is a whole new world coming. And Jesus is going to be the ruler. He's going to be the benevolent dictator. There is not going to be any vote. No Republicans, no Democrats, no Libertarians, none of this icky, pukey political process. None of that. He's going to be established by God. He's going to rule the world with a scepter of righteousness. And the whole world is going to be under him as he rules out of Jerusalem. And those who have been meek and walk in his ways are going to help him take care of the planet. Y'all are quiet tonight. Really, Pastor Jeff, do you really believe that? Well, that's what Jesus said. 
That's what he said. So yes, I do believe it, because that's what he said. Now, some of you, I just heard you, you think this. Well, I don't want to work in heaven. I'm doing all my work here. I thought I was going to float around on a cloud with wings and a harp. Kumbaya. No, but you know what? It won't be work. It will be not manual labor, but Emmanuel labor. Right? Right? 